minds with the chip inside Like a Lincoln digitized out Which prior to this was higher than science could ever devise This is a neural interface We're gonna stick it in your face Still it in your brain and interlace There's an arms war on and we're gonna win the race Leave everything a race, bring the base Welcome to Dangerous Minds, where we delve into the minds of biohackers, grinders, and take a closer look at the tech being implanted and developed by this community. Now, this is a special edition of DMP tonight, as we're sharing a recording of a talk at the last Body Hacking Con this past January. We're sharing this as a recap of great information that was presented, and as a reminder that the same team behind Body Hacks will be putting on another edition of the Body Hacking Con this coming spring. February 2nd through 4th, 2018, in Austin, Texas, for which tickets are on sale now. For more information, go to bodyhackingcon.com. Now, we look forward to seeing you there for the talks and panels or on the expo floor. Right now, all of us at DMP are gearing up for the DEF before DEFCON here in a couple weeks. Now, the team from Body Hacks will also be there. They have a table at the DEFCON Biohacking Village so be sure to stop by and say hi. But before we share these special clips with you, we want to thank our sponsor, Dangerous Things, who delivers custom gadgetry for the discerning hacker and biohacker. So check them out at DangerousThings.com. Also, we'd like to thank Axiom VPN, our solution for keeping our traffic on the internet protected and private. To learn more about the services they provide, please go to AxiomVPN.com. Now, if you or your organization is interested in sponsoring the efforts of Dangerous Minds podcast, please feel free to reach out to us through email at info at dangerousminds.io, and we'll be glad to talk to you about it. Hi, folks. Uh, nice to see you all. Thank you for coming. You know, uh, there is a formality before I start here. As a member in good standing of the uh, after dinner and conference speakers of England, Scotland, and Wales, uh, I have a requirement here as the first speaker of the day to make a joke about you all having been drunk and hung over this morning. This is that joke. Thank you. Uh, so in last March, March 2016, HP pushed out an, an update to its OfficeJet and OfficeJet Pro, Joe, OfficeJet Pro printers in the field, several tens of millions of these printers. Uh, and the users of these printers were alerted via a note on their screen, on the little LCD on the printer, telling them that there was a security update and tap the screen to run the update. Uh, HP officials claim that they get about two-thirds compliance on this kind of update, uh, but my internal sources uh, tell me that it's probably more like 98%. So that update was not, in fact, a security update. What it was was a firmware update that activated a silent counter that counted down until September, six months later. And on uh, the day uh, that it detonated, uh, all of the affected HP printers activated a hidden feature that allowed them to distinguish between third-party ink and first-party ink and to reject all third-party cartridges. So uh, nobody was really sure what was going on when this happened. Just people all over the world woke up and discovered that their printer didn't want to use the cartridge they had. And people swapped in known good cartridges that they had bought in bulk at Costco and the sales. And when the printer refused all of them, they just threw them away. Um, but the message board traffic built up and up, and complaints flooded into third-party ink vendors. And eventually, the picture began to come clear that HP had deliberately broken millions of its customers' property 
uh, and as a way of punishing them for failing to arrange their affairs in the way that was most beneficial to HP's shareholders instead of to their own use of this product. Now, uh, you may think this is just a garden variety ripoff, but it has very deep implications thanks to a late 20th century copyright law that has found an extraordinarily hospitable environment in today's 21st century environment. And that's uh, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA. Congress passed this law in 1998, and it's a kind of gnarly hairball of copyright uh, with many provisions. But the one that I'm going to talk about today is Section 1201 of the DMCA. Uh, under DMC 1201, tampering with access controls for copyrighted works can incur both civil and criminal liability, and not just a little. Uh, for example, on the criminal side, it's a $500,000 fine and a five-year prison sentence for a first offense. And when 1201 passed, this was mostly about protecting the business models of people who made consoles and DVD players. Uh, DVD vendors could uh, add a region code to their discs, and then they could use license agreements to ensure that all the DVD players that could decrypt those discs would check for that region code and reject out-of-region discs. So buying a disc in country A and playing it in country B, that is not piracy, right? That is actually the opposite of piracy, right? Paying the uh, asked-for price for a copyrighted work from the copyright owner uh, and then taking that disc and putting it in your DVD player, that is what we want people to do under copyright law. Um, it, it's indescribably weird that an anti-piracy law banned this act. And for companies like Sega and the other nascent uh, console markets, DMC 1201 protected a, a Dreamcast business model, which was a lot like the iOS app store. Uh, companies that wanted to sell Sega games uh, had to buy special CD mastering services from Sega. Sega charged a very high premium for that, so there was a commission on every disc pressed that went to Sega before you went and bought it, and that commission was in the price of the disc. So there was a little premium on every game that you bought. Now, uh, it meant that Sega could decide who could make the software that ran on the computers that it sold to you. Now, once again, like making a copyrighted game is not an act of piracy, and buying that copyrighted game and playing it on your own computer is not an act of piracy. But by adding a layer of copyright protection to the disc, such that you could only play the disc if it came from Sega, Sega could make buying a disc from a software company that sold it to you that had made that game into an act of piracy punishable by a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine. So uh, every business has uh, commercial preferences and legal rights. Uh, Sega has the legal right to prevent people from cloning Sega consoles and, and, marketing, those game, and marketing those game consoles uh, without, without paying them a license for the copyrights and patents in their devices. But it also has this commercial preference that it wants to be the gatekeeper and toll collector for every game that is sold to run on one of these computers that it's selling you for your living room. And by designing its consoles so that you had to break DRM in order to play on official games, Sega could convert that commercial preference into a legal right. Now that is a license to print money. Uh, what CEO has not dreamed of a world in which Congress would enact a law where acting in a way that frustrated the CEO's wishes was a literal federal crime and felony. And uh, companies began to poke at the DMCA to see if they couldn't avail themselves of this provision to convert their own commercial preferences into legal rights. Um, now, one of them was uh, Skylink. 
uh, Skylink's a company that makes garage door openers. And um, they, uh, uh, they had a commercial preference, which was that everyone should be forced to buy their spare garage door clickers from Skylink, and Skylink charged a high premium on them. And so they designed their openers to only work with their original clickers, which they charge a lot of money for. Now, what normally happens in market economies is if you've got a product that you make a very high margin on and someone can figure out how to make that product for cheaper, they'll manufacture that product, charge less, and it will, competition will drive prices down, and then you have to innovate and invent something else in order to, to, to continue to command a high margin. That's, that's you know, kind of the whole basis for a market economy. Uh, but Skylink said, all right, we're going we're gonna to freeze our competitors out. And so when competitors of theirs started to make their own third-party clickers that cost a lot less than Skylink's clickers, um, Skylink actually sued them under Section 12.1 of the DMCA. They argued that this competition was illegal because they were having to change the software in the Skylink device and that this was a circumvention of uh, a, a technical protection measure on a copyrighted work. But the court didn't buy it. The Federal Circuit said, well, you know, the D DMCA protects access controls to copyrighted works and we can't find anything that is software that is copyrightable in your garage door owner except for the DRM. And so what you're saying is like the DRM is protecting the DRM and that's too circular even for us. And so they threw them out. But then uh, this company, Lexmark, took a swing. So uh, Lexmark had the traditional printer business model, very high price for consumables, uh, subsidy price on the, on the initial hardware. They were at the time IBM's printer division and they had these laser toner cartridges that had a chip, and the chip had a 12-byte program in it. And what that program did is when the toner cartridge was empty, the program ran and said, uh, anytime you ask me, I will tell you I am an empty cartridge. And so if you refilled the cartridge, uh, the printer would ask the chip, are you an empty cartridge? And the cartridge would say, why, yes, I am. And the printer would refuse to use it. And a company called Static Controls which was a competitor of Lexmark's at the time, although now they're Lexmark's owner in a weird turnout for the books. Uh, a company called Static Controls, they cloned the chip. They defeated this 12-byte program because it's a 12-byte program. It's not hard to defeat, right? And um, they made a refiller for these toner cartridges. And Lexmark sued them. And they said, um, we don't just have DRM that's copyrightable. We have a 12-byte program that is copyrightable. And again, the Federal Circuit said, you know, software can be copyrightable, but like 12 bytes doesn't rise to the standard of copyrightability. Uh, so again, you don't have a copyrighted work. So that brings us back to HP and what happened last spring and this autumn. Uh, back in 2003, even a company that was pulling down the massive margins that Lexmark had did not have extra capital to throw into real microcontrollers in its uh, consumables and its toner cartridges. But that is not true any longer. Uh, today, uh, cartridges like the ones in HP printers, they have thousands of lines of code on them, full systems on a chip, uh, with operating systems, network stacks, everything, just in each cartridge. Uh, when HP turns its commercial preference for you to spend more money on ink than you would pay for a vintage Veuve Clicquot, into that legal right to reach into your house and reconfigure your property so that you must do this, we're getting into new and scary legal territory that goes way past what happened with Lexmark a decade and a half ago. It's not hard to figure out how to defeat HP's DRM. Um, 
they have something like an interactive protocol. The printer generates a random number, it sends it to the chip, the chip has a signing key, it signs the random number, it sends it back to the printer. That's how they validate that there's a um, that there's the real uh, deal going on, that it's a real original chip. Now, to defeat this, you have to figure out what their signing key is, and the signing key is in the chip, and the chip is in the cartridge, and to get a cartridge, you just go to the store. Uh, so if you want to have a, cr a crack at like figuring out how to extract that secret from the chip, all you need to do is just go to any office supply store in the world and give them between $10 and $25. And they will give you one that you can take home and subject to fuzzing and decapping and electron tunneling microscopy and all of the other techniques that people use to extract secrets from hardware. So DRM systems, they're built by skilled engineers over a period of years at a cost of millions. And they're broken by bored teenagers in a matter of days for free. And it's not because those engineers are foolish, it's because they're on a fool's errand. Uh, only idiots hide signing keys and equipment that they give to their adversaries for the same reason that even really good bank safes are kept in the bank's vault and not in the bank robber's living room. Because it doesn't matter how good your secrecy is, if you hand your device to your adversary to work on on their own premises with their own equipment, they will always break it open. So it's not hard to break HP DRM, but it is legally terrifying. Investors, retailers, other necessary parties in the value chain are justifiably scared that Fortune 100 companies with billions in cash and, its and their business models on the line will use the DMCA to punish them for helping their customers avoid that 10 billion percent markup for ink. So, um, the uh, printer cartridges are no longer the only devices that have software inside of them in the world today. Uh, software, as Mark Andreessen famously reminded us, is eating the world. It's hard to overstate the cheapness of compute power and the software to run on it, even to an audience of people who are contemplating putting computers in their bodies. Uh, it, it, one thing to think about here is like SD cards, right? Those little cheap disposable SD cards. Um, SD cards use tons of recycled RAM. And that recycled RAM has lots of uh, defects in it. And so the normal way that we would handle that is by like doing a lot of QA on every stick that came off the line to find those sectors and mark them off or see what was going on. It's actually so cheap to add compute power now that every SD card has a full-on system on a chip with its own driver, device driver that in real time is doing bad sector detection and marking off. Right? So that, that like chip that you buy in gross lots for you know, $15, that gross of, of chips, each one has a full-on system on a chip on it because that's how unbelievably cheap compute power is. Uh, embedded Linux has made the jump. It went from DVRs to home routers to network-attached storages to me uh, medical implants and now smart light bulbs. And the weird thing is there is no Internet of Things business model. Hardware starts at a 2% markup and then plummets quickly as soon as your hardware becomes successful and is cloned somewhere in the Far East. And you can actually end up in negative territory in terms of your margin on your hardware. The only way to raise capital for something that has a 2% or less margin is to promise your investors that you're going to make money somewhere else, not on the hardware itself. Uh, and usually that means making money on the ecosystem around the hardware. Uh, and again, if you're interested in body hacking or medical implants, you know about ecosystems. Uh, that's service, parts, consumables, uh, features, and chillingly uh, data about the product's owners. 
um, because uh, while you may not be able to monetize that data now, there might be someone who buys the company later just for access to that data. Now obviously, making sure that people buy service, parts, consumables, and so on from you, that's a commercial preference, not a legal right. But if you have a software-enabled device, that is a device with copyrighted works inside of it, and you design that device so that using third-party ink, or using third-party parts, or making third-party service, or adding a third-party app, requires bypassing DRM, then that legal right, uh, that, that commercial preference, becomes an ironclad legal right that will be enforced at public expense by the government. And that is why DRM is now metastasized. That's why DRM is now in cars. Uh, if you want to fix a GM car, you need to read diagnostics out of the engine. To read diagnostics out of the engine, you either break the DRM, commit a felony, and potentially go to jail for five years, or you buy GRM, GM's official diagnostic tool, which is a $75,000 tool with a cost of goods of $100. It's in tractors. John Deere uses DRM to make sure that the data that you generate, the telemetry about your own field, as you drive your field around your back 40, and the torque sensors on the wheels and the humidity sensors under, on the undercarriage uh, deliver telemetry on a centimeter accurate basis about your field, John Deere locks that data up and sells it to you with apps that do uh, data dispersal or seed dispersal that come as a bundle with seed from companies like Monsanto and Cargill. Um, it's in thermostats, it's in baby monitors, it's in voting machines, it's in pacemakers, it's in implanted defibrillators, it's in insulin pumps, and two CESs ago, we discovered that it was in one of these beauties, the Internet of Things rectal thermometer that has literally put DRM up your literal actual ass. If there is any phrase more terrifying than neural interface beta tester, it's inkjet printer business model in your body. So what does this have to do with security? Well, DRM, as I said before, it works by hiding keys in user accessible equipment, and that requires obfuscation. Users can't know how their computers work, because if they know how their computers work, then they can turn off the DRM. Um, so in normal crypto, in normal security, we talk about this eternal love triangle of Alice and Bob and Carol. Uh, Alice and Bob want to communicate with one another, and Carol wants to find out what they're saying to each other. And Alice and Bob feel confident that they can send messages over public networks, over satellite links that have a footprint that spans a continent, over Wi-Fi networks that anyone can join, or over the internet, which telecoms and other intermediaries sit between when any one of those parties could be Carol, right? Carol could be AT&T helping the NSA, or Carol could be hackers who are inside your LAN, or Carol could be any one of a number of people, and yet Alice and Bob feel okay about sending the messages to each other because um, they have a public algorithm that is well understood, right? They, they tell everyone how their crypto works. Uh, that's a really important step. You know, before we had science, we had a thing that was a lot like science. It was called alchemy. Uh, alchemists did more or less what scientists do. They would form a hypothesis about the natural world and they would formulate an experiment to see whether or not their hypothesis was true. But then they wouldn't tell anyone what they thought they discovered. And so they were subject to the most common of human frailties, which is our endless capacity for self-deception, which is why every alchemist discovered in the hardest way possible that you shouldn't drink mercury. And um, when alchemists began publishing their findings, right, subjecting themselves to adversarial peer review, they finally did something alchemical. They converted the base metal of superstition into the precious matter of science because they let people 
tell them about their foolish mistakes. Um, and so Alice and Bob, they publish their crypto, and they let everyone tell them about the dumb mistakes they've made. They publish their implementation, too. Um, so they know that, that uh, their crypto works, and that means that the only thing they have to keep secret from Carol is the key, because they know, thanks to peer review, that you can take you know, your pocket distraction rectangle, and you can stick a file on it, and then you can use its thin processing power to scramble a message so thoroughly that if all the hydrogen atoms in the universe were computers, and they did nothing until the heat death of the universe but labor to figure out what that key was, that you would run out of universe long before you ran out of possible keys. So Alice and Bob feel very confident in communicating with one another, even though Carol can intercept their message, and even though Carol knows what crypto system they're using to scramble their message. But DRM doesn't have Alice and Bob and Carol. DRM just has Alice and Bob. Like, Netflix is Bob, and you are Carol, or Alice, rather. And Netflix wants to send you a movie that's been encrypted, scrambled, and they want you to use their player to descramble it, because their player doesn't have a Save As button. And that way you can't save it and watch it later if you cancel your Netflix subscription, or share it with people who aren't Netflix subscribers. And so they hide the key in the player, which they then give to you. So in the Netflix model, it's just Alice and Bob. Uh, Bob sends Alice the key. Bob says to Alice, please forget this key as soon as you're done descrambling my message. We have a technical term for this in security circles. It's called wishful thinking. And so DRM doesn't work. Even well-designed DRM it is, fails to work uh, and is a kind of fertile ground for growing malware in. Uh, in 2005, uh, Sony um, shipped out, uh, Sony BMG shipped out 6 million audio CDs, 51 titles, uh, and these CDs uh, had a second session on them, a machine-readable data session that contained a, a rootkit that exploited a zero-day bug in Windows. It would patch your kernel and make your computer incapable of seeing files that began with the string dollar sign $SYS dollar sign. And then what they did was they wrote some software into your um, startup routine that would load and become permanently resident that started with that string that would try and see if you were ripping CDs and interdict it. And as soon as they did this, malware authors went, aha, if I just start my malware with dollar sign $SYS dollar sign, it will be invisible to the user and their antivirus software. And by the time this became public knowledge, long after it was discovered, because the security researchers who discovered it were told by their general counsel that they would risk DMCA prosecution if they came forward with it. But when it was finally made public, at least 300,000 US government and military networks had been infected with this rootkit that made them vulnerable to, uh, to in, uh, opportunistic infections. But DRM doesn't work well, even when it does all of this harm. So the DMCA not only prohibits tampering with DRM, it prohibits disclosure of defects in DRM. Because if I tell you about a mistake the programmer made in your iPhone or your smart light bulb or your smart rectal thermometer, then you know where to go to start dismantling the DRM so that you can bypass it. So last year, uh, a, year and, a year and a half ago now, in 2015, the Copyright Office held its regular every three years hearing on whether or not this stuff was working out right. And they heard from some of the world's preeminent security researchers about the way that this and the Internet of Things had collided to create untold mischief. They heard from researchers like Ed Felton, who was then the uh, 
uh, by the time the proceedings end, ended the deputy CTO of the White House, Jay Radcliffe, a uh, type 1 diabetic who's a principal investigator at Rapid7, uh, Alex Halderman at the University of Michigan, uh, Matt Blaze, Matt Green, Bruce Schneier, names to conjure with in the security world. And they came forward and said that under the DMCA, uh, their counsel had told them that they needed permission from companies to make disclosures without incurring legal risk, which meant that the companies got a veto over who could reveal embarrassing facts about their dumb mistakes. For obvious reasons, corporations are not good custodians of true facts about their own errors. Preventing disclosure does not prevent discovery. It just means that the vulnerabilities that are discovered do not become publicly known until they are so widely exploited by people who weaponize them. Spies, cops, industrial espionage practitioners, malware creeps, voyeurs, and other bad people that it's only once they're so widespread that they're undeniable that the rest of us find out that these vulnerabilities are lurking in systems that we depend on. This is why the Internet of Things dumpster fire continues to rage. It's why Brian Krebs, a security researcher, faced a 620 gigabit per second denial of service attack in September. He had outed a couple of 20-something uh, Israeli denial of service uh, uh, creeps, petty criminals. Um, and they used the uh, Mirai Internet of Things worms, which used hijacked uh, Im embedded systems, to attack him with a traffic flood that was so big, it's more like the kind of thing we see nation states deploying, deploying against each other, but it had been deployed in this case by a couple of dum-dums who were running a petty crimeware uh, ring. Now, the source code for that piece of malware that they exploited was, is uh, Mirai. That was eventually dumped a week later, and the security researchers who analyzed it, they called it amateurish and clumsy. And a week after that, Mirai had infected systems in every country in the world that had reliable electricity and internet access. 10 days after that, the Mirai worm was used to direct uh, uh, traffic floods against core internet infrastructure, level three, DynDNS, Twitter, PayPal, knocking some of the best defended services on the internet offline. So this fire will rage for a long time. And there is no obvious way to patch most of these systems. Even if we fix these problems in the next generation, they will lurk in the previous generations of systems as they sit there festering uh, until their duty cycle runs out, until they're thrown away. Uh, but attacks that harness your equipment to hit third parties, they're just the beginning. The really scary stuff, especially when we're talking about embedded systems in our own bodies, happens when people harness your embedded systems to attack you. The real risk is that these devices, which are designed to treat their users as adversaries and designed to obfuscate their operations, designed to gather as much information about their users as possible in case that turns out to be a vendable asset in the future, designed to be illegal to report vulnerabilities in, when those are used to direct attacks against the people who, de who depend on them directly. You've heard stories of what this looks like. Uh, you may have heard about remote access Trojan people, ratters. Remote access Trojans, that's malware that hijacks your camera, your microphone, your keyboard, your hard drive, uh, and uh, can be used to covertly spy on you. Uh, in 2013, Miss Teen USA Cassidy Wolf visited a website that um, had been hacked by a, a ratter that router uh, was looking for browser configurations that were vulnerable to some bugs that they had in their toolkit. Cassidy Wolfs happened to be vulnerable, so he, this creep was able to take over her computer. He then used her camera to covertly capture incidental nude images of her. 
He also captured her social media logins and passwords, and he sent her emails saying, I have these nude pictures of you, which I will post to your accounts on social media unless you perform sex acts for me on camera. She, by dint of being Miss Teen USA, had access to counsel and, and to uh, more resources than most of this guy's victims, so she called the FBI and they arrested this guy. He had over 100 victims, including many minor children. A few months later, the FBI raided another ratter ring. They netted 100 ratters, uh, the most prolific of whom had 400 victims, including many children. Um, now, uh, summer before last, there was this, the celebrated Jeep hack. Uh, Chrysler made these Jeeps that um, have hotspots on demand. You can pay $10 uh, on your in-dash uh, system and turn on a hotspot driven from a Sprint SIM that's in the, uh, in the car's informatics system. Uh, keep your children entertained on long car rides. Um, the major security model for this was the assumption that nobody used Sprint. And so when security researchers uh, got themselves another Sprint SIM, they discovered not only could they penetrate these systems, but that they've been cross-connected into the car's own networks. And so they could take over the steering, the brakes, uh, the transmission, the windshield wipers, the entertainment system, and so on. Chrysler had to recall 1.4 million Jeeps in the summer of 2015. And then uh, a year ago this month in San Francisco, there was a news cycle about um, a mom whose three-year-old kept saying, Mommy, the phone in my room talks to me at night and it scares me. That was, that was the kid's baby monitor. And uh, she walked by the kid's room one night after tucking him in, and she heard a stranger's voice swearing at her child. And she went in, it was one of those baby monitors that has the movable camera you can steer with an app. And the camera swiveled around to look at her, and a stranger's voice said, uh-oh, mommy's in the room, and it went dead. With Section 1201 of the DMCA, we have given companies every incentive they need to use DRM in their products. And but in so doing, we have given them the ability to end private property as we understand it. Because if the dead hand of the manufacturer rests on your property, even after you've paid for it, ready to slap you anytime you commit the sin of not ordering your affairs to the maximum commercial advantage of their shareholders, then you are not the owner of that property. They are. We are, after all, only one RFID system away from a dishwasher that won't take third-party dishes. We are one vision system away from a toaster that won't let you use unauthorized bread. Now, we have a name for systems where only one special class of people get to own property and everyone else has to be a tenant of that property. It's called feudalism. And under feudalism, everyone who's not a lord is a vassal, uh, a tenant farmer whose rights to the land that they depend on are determined by the whims of the lords they serve. But in DRM feudalism, the aristocracy, it's not even human beings. It's artificial, immortal life forms, colony organism, uh, organisms called limited liability corporations that view us alternately as their food source and their rather inconvenient gut flora. And it's getting worse. So the World Wide Web Consortium, which has historically been the great bastion of open web standards, the web standards that you will use uh, to control the devices you put in your body, they've decided they'll standardize DRM to go in browsers as part of HTML5 with something called encryption, encrypted media extensions. These browsers that are intended to be the sur control surface for all smart actuating devices of the future. And at Electronic Frontier Foundation, we begged the W3C not to do this. We told them about the horrors of the DMCA and they said, well, your problem is the DMCA. It's not 
the technology. Why don't you fix that? And we said, great, let's fix it. Why don't we make everyone who comes to the W3C promise as a condition of membership that they won't invoke the DMCA against security researchers, people who add accessibility features, people who otherwise lawfully innovate. And that came to a vote, uh, and the um, vote was close. Uh, the uh, W3C operates on consensus, so in the absence of a consensus, Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the web, and unfortunately an advocate for this, decided that it would go forward anyway. Now, we were backed by some of the world's leading research organizations, from Oxford University to Lawrence Berkeley Labs uh, to um, King's College London to Stanford. Um, we were backed by some of the world's leading disability rights organizations, the Royal National Institute for Blind People, Benetech, SSB Barton Germany, Vision Australia, and by a list of hundreds of the world's top security researchers. And the W3C this morning announced that it was going to go ahead with publishing uh, or calling a vote on publishing encrypted media extensions, uh, but that they would separately pursue some best practices for security research and disclosures, but without any binding on the people who use this legal weapon that they've developed. Well, let's get back to printers. In 2011, Ang Kui, who was then a researcher at Columbia University, published an excellent paper called uh, Print Me If You Dare, detailing the research he'd done into vulnerabilities in HP's printers. So he'd learned that the way that HP updates the firmware on their printers is by just embedding some special codes in PostScript, the page description language that printers receive from your computer. Somewhere in that document, you, you embed a PostScript line that says operating system starts here and everything read from then on is automatically flashed into the printer's firmware and used uh, as the new operating system load for that printer. So he created poison documents, documents like resume.doc that he could send to your company's HR department. And they would reflash any printer that printed them. The printers, once reflashed, would send them copies of every document they printed, but they would also scan through those documents for anything that pattern matched a credit card number or social security number, save them to a separate file, and send him those. They would also crawl the local area network using a toolkit of known vulnerabilities, looking for computers to exploit and take over, and then open a reverse shell to his computer through your firewall, which would allow him to operate a command and control server that took over your whole local area network. Now, Kui, he picked on HP not because he thought that they were like the worst of the business, but because they were the most successful. You know, you rob banks because that's where the money is. And he figured whatever vulnerability they had, that would be the most widely exploitable vulnerability. So HP, which remains number one in the business, they they've started using security updates to transmit sneak attack time bombs in their equipment. And for the first time, they have created an incentive for people not to install timely security updates. HP has a dress rehearsal for the future of the internet of vulnerable, legal to audit things on fire. Every, HP, every incentive that HP had to remote break its customer's property is present for all of those I, IoT companies. So we have to fix this. I've been giving a lot of thought to two parallel movements that started around the first time I came to Austin for the first Southwest, South by Southwest uh, Interactive Festival. And those two things, they're the open web and the free software movement. They both started around the same time, and one of them has succeeded. The free software movement has absolutely succeeded. You know, you, you use uh, Linux and BSD computers in your pocket to talk to uh, free and open 
uh, operating systems in the cloud in free and open containers running on free and open firmware. Uh, you do have a WinBook or a MacBook, but it's a dumb terminal to talk to a free and open operating system somewhere in the cloud almost all the time. Uh, and at the same time and over the same period, the open web has become the closed web. We went from don't be evil to surveillance business model in a couple of decades. And I've been wondering how this happened because it's mostly the same people, right? When you look at like who was involved in the free and open web and who was involved in free and open code, they were like going to the same parties, getting married to each other, skipping from one nonprofit or for-profit to the other, cross-funding each other, giving each other sofa space to crash on, presenting together at conferences like this. So how did one group succeed and the other one failed? And I think I know the answer. I think the answer is that when you open your code, you assign it an irrevocable license, a license that you yourself can't go back on. And so you can't make a compromise, not even a really tiny one. And the thing about compromises is that one compromise leads to another because the human sensory apparatus is only attuned to relative differences. Right? You make a little change and then you ponder another little change. You don't compare it to where you were before you started. You compare it to where you are now. And each little change is only a little change from the last little change. But one little change leads to another little change, leads to another little change. And before you know it, you're suing to um, put your name on a one-click patent or to make uh, APIs copyrightable or to insist on a real names policy. Uh, or to say that your terms of service are legally binding under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. So we need to figure out how we can bind ourselves to the mast today when we are young and idealistic and sticking things in our bodies. So that later on, when some of us pirates have become admirals, they can't make the little change that leads to the little change that leads to the little change. So I'm going to propose today two, sets of, two principles, a kind of Magna Carta, for your movement and mine, for all of the technology movements that we build from here on out when all of these issues have become so much more pointed. Um, these build on EFS proposal to the World Wide Web Consortium and they lay a groundwork for a future in which devices are responsive to their owners and transparent in their operations. The first of these principles is this, devices should always obey their owners. When a device receives conflicting instructions from a remote party, whether that's the manufacturer, a police agency operating a lawful uh, interception override or crypto backdoor, uh, a spyware or malware creep, um, or anyone else, including someone trying to brick some, something that's been stolen. Because this is not an unalloyed good. It takes away some of our useful use cases. Whenever a device gets conflicting owner or orders from its owner and a third party, it should always, 100% of the time, obey its owner. The second principle is that true facts about the security of systems that people depend on should always be legal to disclose under every circumstance. There should never be any impediment to telling someone that the computer that they depend on is not fit for use. And I charge you to be hardliners for these principles. If they don't call you a fanatic and a Puritan about these principles, you are not trying hard enough. If you aren't un totally uncompromising in these principles, you set the stage for long-term harms that are worse than any short-term benefit that you can gain by compromising on them. If you computerize the world and your bodies and don't safeguard the users of computers from coercive control, 
History will not remember you as the heroes of technology, but as the blind handmaidens of tyranny. What are we going to do about this? How are we going to make this real? Well, not through individual action. Uh, you can't recycle your way out of climate change on your own, and you cannot uh, fix these problems on your own with your own personal technology decisions. We need collective action to solve these problems. And at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, we are doing something about this. We've running, we're running this project called Apollo 1201, named after Section 1201 of the DMCA and the Apollo mission. It's a 10-year mission to kill all of the DRM in the world within a decade. Now, we started this with a bang. Last summer, we sued the US government to invalidate Section 1201 of the DMCA. We're representing two uh, great clients uh, who may be familiar to you. One is uh, Johns Hopkins security researcher Matthew Green. Uh, Matt has a National Science Foundation grant and a book deal to investigate the security of a number of systems, including medical implants and uh, medical diagnostic equipment, but also voting machines, the black boxes at payment processing system, uh, systems that do uh, high-speed payment processing and validation, and many other systems. We're also representing a legendary hardware hacker, uh, an adjunct at the MIT Media Lab called Bunny Huang, Andrew Bunny Huang, the guy who broke the Xbox. Uh, Bunny is uh, someone who spent his whole life waiting for a fight like this. He told me that he and his uh, girlfriend never got married because he wanted to have separate finances in case the lawsuit that came ended up bankrupting him. And uh, Bunny, he makes a, a piece of hardware that allows you to inject uh, bitmaps into HDCP signals, the, the high-res uh, video signals, like the one that's going from my computer to there, and, and do an overlay. It's used in bars all over the world to say like half price drinks for the next half hour uh, and the bottom third beneath the sports match. Um, he uh, wants to improve this. He's figured out how to do this without having to decrypt HDCP so it doesn't break the DMCA. He wants to improve it by adding recording features. So since both of these people are entering into courses of action that credibly run afoul of the criminal provisions of the DMCA of tw Section 1201, they both have standing to sue the US government to determine the constitutionality of this law. And we have a variety of arguments, but one of the key ones is that code is speech, that the way programmers express themselves is by writing software. And this is a principle that is well established in law. In 1992, we won one of our first and most important cases. I have to say our first first case was representing Steve Jackson Games here in Austin, uh, where we established that you needed a warrant to look at email. But our second most important case was when we represented Daniel J. Bernstein, who was then a a grad student at the University of California at Berkeley and a cryptographer. And uh, he was publishing crypto on Usenet. And he was publishing this strong crypto that um, exceeded the maximum strength the NSA allowed for civilian use. They classed it as ammunition. And so we sued the US government on his behalf. And we said he has the First Amendment right to publish his source code. And not only did the Ninth Circuit uphold us, they upheld it at the appellate division and the ban on strong crypto disappeared forever, which is why you can validate the software load on your implanted pacemaker or defibrillator before you install it. And so we think that we have some very good law to rest on. And this is going to take a long time to come to, to, come to fruit. Uh, it's going to take 10 years, probably, to get all the way through the Supreme Court. Uh, and during that 10 years, the landscape is changing for breaking DRM. Today, if you were to go to your general counsel and say, I've got an idea for a product that breaks DRM and makes us some money, do you think we should do it? 
your general counsel might look at the jurisprudence to date and say, it's pretty risky, I don't think you should. But once we start winning in the lower courts, all of a sudden this becomes indeterminate. There are people who are risk tolerant enough and who see enough of an upside from, for example, making a $500 version of GM's $75,000 tool and making a mere 500% markup by allowing people to fix their own cars, that we imagine that people will start to take bets on our case coming out the right way and starting those businesses. Now, every country in the world has a version of the DMCA, thanks to the US Trade Representative, with one exception, that's Israel, which for complicated reasons uh, that have nothing to do with DRM, is uh, able to uh, pick and choose which US Trade Representative demands they accede to and which ones they don't. And the Israelis have become very interested in the last couple of months in starting an export business in breaking DRM, which is yet another reason to start thinking about breaking DRM here. And the United Kingdom, where DRM law came through the European Union Copyright Directive 2001, they're now reconsidering all of their European laws. And if there's a market to be made in breaking DRM, there's a good reason for them to reconsider that law. The exciting thing about this is you don't have to give a damn about security. You don't have to give a damn about consumer freedom. You don't have to give a damn about any of this stuff to want to break DRM. You can merely want to get rich as hell. And if you do, you help us. And we think that when we get there, um, we will find ourselves in a position where the court will review the, the, all of this activity in the world and say, you know, um, it would bring the court into disrepute. It would, be, it would make us look like fools to maintain this ban, just as they did with the VCR in 1984, where there were six million VCRs in America's living rooms at the end of eight years of litigation. And each of the Supreme Court justices drove past a video rental store to get to the Supreme Court on the morning they ruled on Betamax. And when they got there, they decided that they just couldn't ban a thing that was in so many American living rooms. Because the court is constitutional, uh, is consequentialist, rather. So um, I'm a science fiction writer. Uh, this stuff is not science fiction. This stuff is stuff that I'm working on as part of what I consider to be the real predictable technical reality on the ground today. But because I'm a science fiction writer, people often ask me if I'm optimistic or pessimistic about the future. And the thing is that that's by way of asking me to make a prediction. And science fiction writers suck at making predictions. We are Texas marksmen, if you can forgive the expression. We fire a shotgun into the side of the barn and then we draw a target around the place where the pellets have hit and declare ourselves to be dead eyes. Science fiction's made a lot of predictions, almost none of them have come true. Uh, it would be amazing if some of them hadn't. And besides, even if you could predict the future, why would it matter? You know, if you were optimistic that all this stuff was gonna come out okay, and that we would be able to put our bodies in computers and put computers in our bodies without having to worry about all these shenanigans being visited upon us, you should get up every morning and do everything you can to make sure that future arrives. And if you're pessimistic and you think that entertainment law from the last millennium will create a situation in which we can never be the true custodians of the computers in our body and malware is allowed to flourish in these computers that are so intimately woven into the fabric of our lives. If, if you think that we are gonna be Huxleyed into the full Orwell, you should get up every morning and do everything you could to make sure that doesn't happen. Because if the future is predictable, then we might as well kill ourselves now because nothing we do will make a difference. So rather than being optimistic or pessimistic, I am hopeful. And hope is the belief 
that you can change things a little, and from that vantage point of things being a little better, find a way to make them better still. The casualty of every battle is uh, the plan of attack. And so knowing how to get from A to Z is largely irrelevant if you know that you're going to have to try, try a new path around C. But if you know how to get from A to B, maybe you can navigate your way one step at a time through a hill climbing algorithm all the way to Z. So how can you express that hope? Well, I have two things you can do. Um, the first is to think about how you can hedge your bets. Uh, I am a committed free software and free networks person. And nevertheless, every morning I get up and give money to companies whose mission is to destroy both of those. Uh, it doesn't matter how pure you are. Uh, if you live in the modern world, you are contributing to your own downfall. Uh, every vegetarian eventually meets a vegan. Every vegan eventually meets a breatharian. It doesn't matter how pure you are. So uh, rather than trying to be pure, I ask you to tithe. And I got this from Denise Cooper, who's a great open source advocate. Every month, she adds up how much money she's giving to companies that want to destroy the world she wants to live in. And she diverts it to organizations that are trying to save it from that future. And obviously, I'm biased. Electronic Frontier Foundation is an organization I've worked for for 15 years, off and on. They don't give me any money. Uh, I get my money from uh, the MIT Media Lab. They, they have a grant through this activist in residence thing that pays for the work I do at EFF. So this isn't about me. But I've never seen an organization be smarter with its money. They know how to squeeze a dollar till it hollers. And here in Austin, you've got EFF Austin, uh, which is the only chapter ever established of EFF before they worked out that being an impact litigator with a bunch of people running around speaking for you could really screw up your court cases. So EFFA was grandfathered in. Uh, there's the ACLU, who are doing some pretty important work these days. The Free Software Foundation, Software Freedom Conservancy. There's Benetech. There's uh, the Human Rights Data Analysis Group, Creative Commons. So many organizations. Back when I started doing this work, there were three or four. And now there's so many, I can't count them all. And so you can tithe. You can make uh, a donation to save the future that you are contributing to the downfall of. And then more immediately, you can talk about this with two people. Two, not two randos, not two people who are not technologically clued in. Uh, everyone wants to use their mother as an example. That, that's a horrible example. Uh, no one designs technologies for moms, so moms have to be total ninjas and figure out how to bend themselves to fit the technology. Like, um, have a conversation with your boss, right? Because no one has ever made technology so hard their boss can't use it. Uh, and so bosses are really accustomed to the technology coming to them. Find a couple of people who are technologically clued in and explain this to them. And then come back a week later and ask them if they're willing to have that conversation with two more people. There is a lot on the line here. A future where our devices obey us, a future where we're allowed to warn ourselves about the defects lurking in those devices, and no one of us gets to choose which future we're going to arrive at. But together, we get a chance. There's too much at stake not to fight with everything we have. Thank you. So uh, I got a five-minute flash before, but I thought I had some time for questions. Do I have still have time? OK, I like to call alternately on people who identify as female or non-binary, and then people who identify as male or non-binary as a way of getting some parity. Uh, and also, I remind you that a long rambling statement followed by what do you think of that is technically a question, but not a good one. Uh, so with that in mind, is there anyone who identifies as female or non-binary who'd like to start the questioning? I 
I know all that was really non-controversial, and so it may be that nobody has anything to say, but... Yeah, go ahead. Are there any vehicle manufacturers fighting against this? No. Uh, in fact, they're all kind of going in the other way. Like, Dieselgate was kind of a, a hint of where all this stuff is going. Uh, I was a commenter, I wish I could remember his name, who wrote about Dieselgate and called it the era of demon-haunted things. Um, so, alchemists, I mentioned them before. Alchemists used to think that the reason they got different results every time they ran their experiments is because um, God was punishing them for their hubris. Right? Not, not that humans are shitty lab techs, but that God was punishing them for their hubris. That every time they tried to uh, unpick the nature of creation, that God would run around and rearrange the fabric of reality, or demons would do it, in order to stop them from, from finding out how the world worked. Well, Volkswagen made a demon-haunted car, right? If, if you subject that car to scrutiny, when you watch it, it behaves differently than when you're not watching it. It is a remarkable thing. So, you know, Tesla, that's everyone's uh, dream car, you know, the, the, the most clued in of the cars, the least dinosauric of them all. Tesla's got terms of service that say that you're not allowed to drive Uber in your Tesla, that they are going to, like, use your, their firmware to try and stop you from driving in any ride share except for their ride share with your car. I mean, your car in, in this sense, right? Because it's not your car ever. And I guess until the 90-year copyright on that software expires, it's Tesla's car that you're dumb enough to pay them to drive. Uh, and I think that's a universal among car manufacturers at this point. I don't know if local motors, they might be doing something. But people are starting to poke around the edges at building um, trustable hardware stacks from the, from the ground up. So I mentioned Bunny Wang before. Uh, Bunny has been working with Singaporean and Chinese manufacturers to marry um, two different kinds of openness. So one is this Chinese idea of gongkai, which I'm sure I'm pronouncing wrong, which is a kind of de facto openness where you get um, gear from manufacturers that comes with like schematics and uh, API documentation, but no license that allows you to use either of them. And then the free and op open source world where licenses and code all have to go together. And Gongkai is kind of just de facto, right? Everyone just kind of shares stuff around and it just kind of happens. It's kind of rough consensus running code and let's hope nobody ever sues anyone, which is like, it feels like a good way to run things until someone sues someone. Uh, a bit like software patents when they kicked off, we were like, well, only, only like mature companies that actually build stuff will use software patents, obviously. And then, you know, 98% of the patent threats that are, that are sent are now sent by companies that don't produce anything except lawsuits, you know. Uh, so Bunny is trying to marry open source and Gonkai. He's making this thing called the Novena, which is an open source motherboard where every component is free and open from the ground up. So it's open source hardware. The firmware loads on things like the USB controller are open. The bootloader is open. Everything is open all the way up. And so like open as in GPLs. Uh, it's pretty sexy, um, and his idea is that as Moore's Law starts to peak, uh, and as the amount of computing that we shift into the cloud continues to increase, the need to swap out computers every 18 months, even for heavy users, goes down. And so people might want to buy heirloom computers. So they're building beautiful handmade you know, aircraft aluminum and wood and bamboo, beautiful computers with these open source logic boards in them that are like seven, $8,000. And he thinks he's got a market for it there. Uh, but he's also doing it because he wants there to be an open load, an open stack 
for hardware that starts at the bootloader and works its way out all the way up to the operating system. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Who can help you with uh, open with uh, opening up insulin pumps today? Because there's real problems with them today, and there really are. So I, I mentioned um, uh, oh God, Travis. Uh, God, what's his name from from Rapid Seven? Um, I always blank his name. The guy from Rapid Seven who filed in the uh, in the. Hang on, sorry. Nothing more exciting than watching someone go through papers. Jay Radcliffe. Uh, from Rapid7, who's a T1 diabetic. And uh, he discovered that the insulin pump, the wireless insulin pump that he was using that could kill him in his boots by dumping its entire load of insulin into his bloodstream in one go, that it was really badly secured. Uh, he won't use automated insulin pumps anymore, even though, as I mentioned before, humans are really shitty lab techs. And like, you know, pricking yourself, measuring your own dose, and putting your own bolus in, especially when you're having blood sugar problems that uh, have accompanying cognitive impairments, it's going to shorten your life. And he's like, I will take years off the end of my life to not have a wireless device that no one's allowed to fix that I know have serious vulnerabilities that is sitting there in my body. There is a group called the Closed Loop Group that's working to write open firmware for insulin pumps and continuous glucose monitors that, as the name um, implies, closes the loop. So you're reading insulin, you're bolusing, uh, you're or reading blood sugar, bolusing, rereading the blood sugar, and um, dialing in the dose using machine learning over time that adapts to the idiosyncratic way in which you metabolize um, insulin and sugar. Uh, but at the same time, um, when they blew the whistle on the problems with insulin pumps, the major insulin pump manufacturers responded by adding DRM so that you couldn't, uh, they said it was so you couldn't put third-party firmware in. Of course, you just have to break the DRM, which is not hard, but it also means that you can't report defects anymore without risking DMCA prosecution. So, uh, you know, it's, it is a scary thing. Um, you know, there, there's, uh, unfortunately, in a lot of these cases, uh, the answer that the people who are most uh, close to the problem, people, people like um, uh, Jay Radcliffe, the answer they come up with is just don't use the machine, which is a terrible answer, right? Uh, but, you know, it, it, it comes up again and again. I, I, um, had this argument with my wife. We moved to California a year and a half ago, almost two years ago now, and she came out ahead of us and bought um, a drop cam for the house uh, that we rented, uh, one of these Canary cameras. And it's got a motion sensor and an app, and it signals your phone and shows you video if the motion sensor goes on while it thinks you're out of the house. And I said, I don't want a network camera in our house. And she said, uh, well, how do you know it's not secure? And I'm like, well, I don't have the chops to like dump its firmware and go through it line by line. But I'll tell you what, I'll look up its privacy policy. And so I got to the FAQ and it said, who can see video from my Canary camera? And the answer was, we carefully vet which people in our data center are allowed to see the decrypted stream from your Canary camera. And I wrote to them and said, so like by design, this is not end to end, by design, third parties can see it. And they said, yes, by design, that's the case. And it's the case for like not terrible reasons, right? Like it's probably hard 
to build enough compute power into a cheap enough device to stick in your home to successfully distinguish things like pets from burglars. And so to reduce the number of false positives and make it useful, they wanted to crypt the stream and do some post-processing it on their data center. So it's impossible to do that economically and hardware in your living room, and it's impossible to secure it if you let people in the data center see it. So what's the answer? And the answer we came up with is, we just don't have one, right? And that's like, as someone who's a committed technophile who loves gadgets and watches unboxing videos for fun, that is a hard answer to arrive at. But that might be the answer in some of these cases, at least until we can do things like build open firmware stacks from the ground up, reform some of these statutes and so on. Like, you know, my answer to how do you use Facebook in a way that's secure is I don't use Facebook. And it means I miss parties and don't find out what's going on in my friends' lives. And there's lots of downsides to it. Uh, and it's really hard to adequately judge the long-term downside of things when there's an immediate upside. It a, it's a, takes a lot of self-discipline to do it. Uh, and particularly when it's, it's something where the benefits are networked, where you and your friends all benefit together from all of you taking part in it. Uh, but it, it's a thing that we just end up having to do, which feels like a weird thing to say to a room full of people who are interested in putting computers in their bodies or engaging with synthetic biology. Maybe we just shouldn't do it because we don't know how to make it safe. But there are domains in which I am expert enough. I'm not an expert enough in your domain, but I'm expert enough in my domain to say that you just shouldn't do this stuff. Um, yes, ma'am. So the question is, have we thought about using product liability to go after HP because it's not working the way that you thought it would? I think HP's answer would be it was never advertised as being able to do that. Uh, that, um, they, uh, that, that you know, if you get the box, somewhere on the box or in the fine print, it says, you know, works with HP original ink cartridges. Uh, we, have, we did, in fact, look for older advertising materials uh, that said that the Internet Archive is useful for this. We couldn't find anything that was a slam dunk. We talked to the FTC, uh, we talked to some state AGs, but we didn't get there with HP. We are now building out some infrastructure, a kind of action center that we can hold in the ready. So the next time this comes up, because there's just going to be more of this, we can give you a one click to contact your state AG, your local Better Business Bureau, the FTC, and your Congress member. Um, we also did get contacted by some class action lawyers and we connected them with people who had contacted us. Um, so there is some class action in, in the offing. I think in a lot of cases you're going to see binding arbitration as a condition of using the device. So even then you're going to find very narrow remedies. And again, you know, this takes place against this wider backdrop of increased corporate power uh, and um, a legal system that's increasingly tilted towards incumbents. Uh, and that means that um, a lot of the traditional remedies that we look for are not going to be available to us. It's why we're going for this uh, impact litigation to invalidate the statute as our first line, even though it's such a long game. I mean, not as long as reforming it in Congress, but it's still a very long game because the, the um, short game, you know, the product liability game is very hard to reach at this point. Uh, we do think the class action people 
are, have a useful role to play there, uh, provided that there isn't binding arbitration. In it. But I think if they start scoring big wins, I think you'll see binding arbitration universally rolled out for, for all of these products. Um, but I, I agree with you that like the mere fact that the manufacturer hasn't, off, hasn't advertised it for a specific purpose or that they haven't um, marked it off as prohibited or that you know, they tell you not to use it in a certain way, that shouldn't be decisive. Right, like KitchenAid never told you you could mix paint in your paint mixer, right? In your in your kitchen mixer, that doesn't mean that they should be able to like disable paint mixing, like you know use a you know integrate a mass spectrometer that disables paint mixing, and then like make it a felony to disable that that mass spectrometer. That's I mean that's not really what the statute was crafted for. Although we did warn people that this would happen in '98. And you know, it, it was a bipartisan madness, unfortunately. You know, ba Barney Frank, there's a, a picture of him, famous picture of him clinking a champagne glass with Jack Valenti uh, on the eve that it was passed, was the head of the Motion Picture Association, the guy who said that the VCR is to the American film industry as uh, the Boston Strangler is to a woman home alone. Um, so it really is a bipartisan madness, unfortunately. Um, we do think that there's like a strong argument to be made on both sides of the, of the floor for this. I think that there's like a, a property rights uh, argument to be made to uh, people who are free market true believers, and that there's also a, uh, a personal dignity and, and power imbalance argument to be made, consumer protection right to be uh, made to, um, to people on the democratic or left-wing side of the house. So uh, last question, uh, go. So there are companies that offer software uh, bounties for bugs, and um, I think that's great. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the devil is in the details. Did the, does it come with a gag order? You know, there are, there are, other, there are other possible problems with it. Um, and I, I, you know, the way that I approach problem solving is how do we make things less worse? I figure there are people who are domain experts in like how to make it better. Like there are people who sit at the coalface of fixing bugs in code, people at, you know, on the Chrome security team, for example, who sit there fixing bugs. And they have intimate firsthand knowledge of the best way for them to receive bugs. And they can order their affairs however they want uh, to make it work well. Uh, what I know is that it fails badly when you say companies, whatever plan they have to make it work, also get to dictate who can decide that that plan doesn't work for them, right? When they get to, when they get to exercise a veto over the disclosure of true facts. Um, that is not normally a feature of law uh, for true facts to be in the, uh, for true facts to be uh, only disclosable under, under limited circumstances with some, you know, minor stuff around the edges around trade secrecy and so on. And it's interesting because uh, in the email that the um, World Wide Web Consortium sent around this morning, they said that Tim Berners-Lee was greenlighting a, 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 like a blue ribbon panel to uh, investigate best practices for security disclosures through a responsible channel, which is to say under circumstances that companies agree with, but not to say that it should be uh, an absolute inalienable principle that true facts about security should be disclosable under any circumstances, and that companies, if they want to entice people to disclose under controlled circumstances, should 
formulate those enticements against a backdrop where people can walk away from the offer, right? Like if we want companies to formulate good offers for their bug bounties, they can't say take it or leave it, right? There has to be against that offer from the company, come to us and we'll give you X hundred dollars and promise that you can publish in six weeks. There has to be the ability for you to say, I don't like that deal. I'm just going to I'm just going to stand up on stage at DEF CON and talk about it, right? Uh, if, if the deal, if the company is like, do it our way, or we put you in jail for five years, then the companies get to craft some extraordinarily crappy deals and make them stick. So if we want to make companies have good bug bounties, we have to make the alternative to bug bounties good as well, right? Non-risky as well. We need graceful failure modes to underpin our, our well-crafted success modes. Thank you all very much. Thank you for having me. And a special thanks to the team at Body Hacks for sharing this recording with us. And remember, if you're able to make it out to Austin, Texas for Body Hacking Con, it'll be worth the trip. For the panels and the topics covered are just a small portion of the action. With the activities and networking available with the other attendees is a true payoff. So our loyal listeners, if you'd like to know more about this journey we take, weekly, check out the DMP homepage, dangerousminds.io, or go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash dangerousmindspodcast. Please keep in mind, events like these are listed on our DMP Google Calendar, and if you have an event that you would like to add to it, please email us more information about it at info at dangerousminds.io. Now, all of us would like to Thank you for joining us as we floor, further explore the tech and the people behind it within this fastly growing community of biohacking, grinding, and implantable technology today. If you like the programming we share and the work we are doing in the community, please support us by going to our Patreon page and becoming a supporter at www.patreon.com forward slash dangerous minds. And please feel free to reach out to us with questions or comments, and perhaps we might one day talk to you about the work and our projects you're exploring and developing. Until next week, seek the spark. Scientific progression is steamrolling, there's no preventing it going ahead. Now we're intrinsically linked with technology, biology as we know.